Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Well, it's really good to be together. My name is Gabe Phillips. If, we, if, I, if you missed my introduction a little bit earlier amongst the chatter, I'm married to Fiona, who is in the, at the back with the little baby called Olivia Grace. And she's also got a growing tummy because we are expecting a little boy in June, which is exciting. Yeah, it's very cool. So um, just to let you know, dependent on the gift you want to sow into our lives, we'll name the child after you if you want. We're not, a, we're not beneath that, so... Should we start the bidding? We'll start the... No, I'm just joking. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In your dreams, Paul. In your dreams. But it's really cool. But uh, but mentioning my wife always reminds me of... Uh, I've told these stories many times, and I, and I won't uh, bore you with the details, but uh, it was on the 11th of April, 2013, that we went on our first date. Fiona didn't know it was a date at the beginning of it. it I took her by surprise. I won't bore you with the evening shenanigans and the, the incredible way I, I wowed her and wooed her and she was eating out the, out of the palm of my hand. Not literally, we had plates for our meal. But, um, but by the end she was, she, I think she was in, her eyes were, were glistening, it was good and I, I won't tell you how I wrapped up the date, it was a, f- a phenomenal way I thought, as a perfect gentleman, took her to a flat, uh, she stayed on the beachfront in Tableview there and I drove her to, to the gate of the, the flats and I walked up the stairs, took her to her door, said goodnight Fiona and, and we had one of those awkward, do we handshake, do we hug, we didn't really know, but it was still, go- it was still magical, you know, if you can imagine. If you get past the awkwardness, it was magical. But then I made sure she was safe. She shut the door. I went down with a spring in my step, singing to myself, you're the man. You're the man. You know? And uh, and I got in my car, and I was so in my own world that as I started to reverse out of the cul-de-sac to go home late that evening, I didn't notice that another car pulled out at the same time. And uh, as I started driving home, I started to, you know, when you're just in your own world, you're pumping the tunes now, the arms there, you're cool. You know, you're like, I'm the guy. I'm the man. Um Maybe you haven't been a redhead before, but having a girl go on a date with you is a huge success. Anyway, but as, as we were on our way home, I started to look in the mirror again, and, and the same car was following me. I thought, okay, one or two turns. It's okay, but after a third turn where the car is still behind me, my heart started to beat a little bit faster. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, but I started to get really nervous and thinking, am I about to become a statistic? I was like very nervous. I thought this is the worst way to finish. You know, I've got this exciting potential relationship opening up, and I've got this this crazy situation going on. So you got to the first traffic lights. If you can, if you are a table view local, you'll know on the way to, by close to Bayside. And, and I, I try to play it cool because, you know, I thought, okay, just be ready. If that door opens, I'm going to go, you know, and you're just watching. But every time we stopped at a traffic light, the person would duck and not show their face. And I'm starting to think, what type of criminal is this? <laughs> this is terrifying. I'm not even going to see them. And uh, I kid you not, eventually, you know, try to play it cool, but, you know, you don't want to be like, you don't want to be overly worked up in the situation. But we got into R27, and I started to push the pedal down. Because <laughs> you're going, let me, let me put some distance. Maybe I'm imagining this. But as the faster I went, the faster they went, and they were tailing me. And I'm, I'm now starting to pray in tongues. I, I don't know. I, if I wasn't a charismatic before, I was charismatic in that moment, saying, Jesus, I need you now. And uh, we got to the, one of the turnoffs. I took the turnoff at pace, you know, just so you make sure at the last minute, that person, the car behind me, took the, the turnoff at the same speed. And I, I thought, what do I do? You know, remember your training. Remember the Arrive Alive campaigns. Remember all those warnings. And I pulled dramatically into a garage. I think I was about to leap out and tell all the petrol tenants, help, help, help. And this car pulled up beside me at a, a rate of knots. My heart was about to jump out of my chest. And I looked next door to me. And it's one of my best friends from the southern suburbs who's smiling and laughing. 
he winds down the window and he says, who was that girl? <laughs> and uh, my cover was blown. My stealth mode undercover flirting was blown by this guy who pursued me. And I tell this silly story, real story that happened. But because uh, last week we've, we started a journey, this, this is the second week of it. If you missed it last week, you missed a doozy because it was a story of a family named Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau. And it's a story of favoritism, a story of betrayal, of lies, of theft, of identity fraud, and somehow blessing. The story of blessing mixed in all of that uh, skullduggery. As we see the, the youngest, Jacob, stealing, the, the story culminates in Jacob stealing his older brother Esau's blessing, his older brother's inheritance, his older brother's future. And the story is left there. But this morning, I want to pick up that the tale does not stop there. If you keep reading in Genesis, that Esau, the older brother who's been robbed of, of his inheritance, his future, his blessing, is furious. And he makes a vow that actually says, I, once dad dies, I'm going to do everything in my power to kill Jacob. Now, this is the story, if you follow Genesis, that the rest of Jacob's life up to a point is dogged by the fact that his older brother is chasing him, is pursuing him. And he's got the fear. I can imagine as he moves on, his, his next point of call is to flee from the, the land he knew because he knew that his older brother was out for blood. His whole life, he's got this future, this inheritance, this blessing, but he's got this Esau who's just behind him. Now, I, I want to say this morning that I believe that there are many of us here who maybe even you've been Christian for a long time. Maybe you've been a churchgoer for a while. Maybe this is new to you, but, but I want to say I believe there are many here who, who know or they'll say we are blessed by God. You'll know the phrase, I'm blessed by God. But it feels like there's a shadow of your past that you can't outrun. Or maybe there's a shadow of your sin, a shadow of your pain, your memories, your emotional instability, your fragility, your insecurity. The voice of disqualification is always just behind you. It feels like like I did. There's this incredible relationship, potential future opening up, but there's just someone in the rearview mirror that I just feel I can't get rid of. This morning I want to ask us the question, how do we live in breakthrough when it feels like we just can't catch a break? Good. I'm glad you asked that question this morning. So I'm going to ask us very briefly, if we stand to our feet, because I'd love to pray for us before we preach this morning. Let's open our hearts to, to, to God. He's here with us this morning. He's wanting to do something out of the ordinary with us. Father, this morning, would you show us that because of your son, Jesus, our futures are always, always, always greater than our pasts. And that our destiny is not dependent on our history. I pray, Father, would you show us that you're kinder, more gracious, and greater than we could ever, ever, ever dare dream. Would you do this in your mighty name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. As you take a seat, say to somebody next to you, it's time for breakthrough. Come on. It's time for breakthrough, brother. Very cool. You guys are a good church. I'm just living out my failed Pentecostal dreams with you. So thank you so much, everybody. I appreciate that. The story picks up as uh, Jacob, Esau is saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to pursue you. So Jacob's on the run and he ends up arriving. If you want to read us in chapter 28, 29, if you keep reading the story of Genesis, he arrives at his uncle Laban's house. And his uncle Laban welcomes him. In, and in this, in this fold, as I mentioned last week, that he falls in love. I mentioned Jacob is, uh, he's terrible with the girls. How do we know this? Because he spots Rachel. His heart is all a quiver. He's so excited. He runs up to her. He kisses her and he starts to cry. 
that, that man's got swag. <laughs> I, tell, I, I, I don't know. That, that, that doesn't often work, but for him it worked because Rachel fell for him as well in this moment. And this incredible man, he saw Rachel in the Bible, describes her as beautiful. She had this, the Bible tells us this incredible woman, Rachel, she would, she was a stunner. She would steal your breath. She would walk in the whole room would turn. Rachel. Just she was the one, and she was incredible. And this man, uh, Jacob, he fell in love with her, and he said, you know what, I will do anything for that girl. He was, he was singing, I will do anything for love, and I'll do anything, anything, as Meatloaf once told us. Anything, and there was no disclaimer at the end. He said, I'll do anything for her. And Laban said, anything? Cool. You can have Rachel, but you have to work for me for seven years first. Jacob didn't even skip a beat. He said, done, I'll do it. For her, it's worth it. So he started to work for her, and he started to work for Laban for seven years, and the Bible tells us it's, it's, it was seven years, but it felt but a moment to him. You know, when you're in love, just, it was like a moment. It's like, you know, seven years, what's seven years in comparison to the beauty of this girl? But the Bible also tells us that there was a second girl lurking around the corner, actually Rachel's older sister, and uh, I love the Bible, how it pulls no punches. It, it introduces us to the older sister called Leah, and the Bible says she had dull eyes true story. This is just following on. It says, Rachel, the Bible, the writer of, of Genesis is waxing lyrical about Rachel. She is beautiful. She's a stunner. She's a head turner. And Leah had dull eyes. Shame. Poor Leah. I don't know what you picture when you see dull eyes, but, uh, but it's just, it's, it's that sort of description. It's like a blah, ordinary, a very ordinary, plain Jane, just a run of the mill girl compared to the sisters. Like, oh, shame. But Jacob starts to work for, for Rachel. And after seven years, this, the, the Laban comes and says, I want, he goes to Laban and says, I want, my, I want my reward. I want Rachel. I want to marry her now. So Laban says, agreed. And Laban throws this massive party where I can imagine this liberal amount of alcohol. So everyone's very jollified and excited about this, this, this consummation of, the, of, of marriage between Rachel and Jacob. But just at the moment when he's about to, to be betrothed to Rachel, there's a bait and switch. In the, in the drunken further, further of the evening, Laban cons Jacob and switches the girls. And, 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 and Jacob in his drunken stupor, he goes and he, and he ends up marrying Leah and going to bed with Leah, the dull-eyed girl. And the Bible says he wakes up in the morning, shock horror, it's Leah, not Rachel. What have I done, he says. And the, the con artist, if you remember the story from last week, was that Jacob tricked his brother Esau, tricked his father by dressing up. He has the same treatment. The con artist gets conned by his, by his father-in-law Laban as he gets given the wrong girl, or seemingly the wrong girl. Now, for time's sake, it's a great story to go read. But this amazing story is, as he marries her, and then, then he goes he goes and confronts his father-in-law. His father-in-law says, hey, you know what, you can still have Rachel, but you're going to have to work for me another seven years. And Jacob's like, this is the worst bargain ever. But he, he goes through with it, and he marries Rachel and, he, and Leah as well. And he has children. But the kids start to come not from Rachel, they start to come from Leah. And if you read the story, and, and just for time's sake, just you start to read the different names as Rachel, as Leah gives birth to these children, as there's this rivalry's birth between Rachel and Leah. And then uh, Leah, uh, Rachel then gives her maidservant to Jacob so she can have some kids of her own from this side. And then Leah says, no, but you can have my maidservant. This is crazy. This puts days of our lives into the, into the distance, man. This is sordid stuff in the Bible. But, but all these kids, and actually as you follow the track record, is actually that the children side from these two marriages, just one from Rachel, but mainly from Leah, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Out of this chaos, out of this bizarre setup. Now, why am I saying this? Very quickly before we move into the meat of what I want to say today, is something that just struck me 
for myself and I pray for us as a church. I want to ask us to learn to train our eyes to look with faith. Can we be a people who train our eyes to look with faith? You see, here's the difference. Is that not to read too much into the text, but this man, his eyes were attracted to Rachel, the thing that looked good, the thing that was, that was pleasant to the eye. And the old dull-eyed girl, no thanks, I don't want her. But it was actually through the dull-eyed girl that the line of Jesus came. Now, what I'm trying to say here is that I, I learned this story recently. A man named Rian told me the story about his son. He has a son named Sebastian, and he trains his children to look for bargains. So this is what they do as a family. They get in the car, they go to Cash Crusaders in the afternoons with spare moments, and he lets them loose to go look for bargains that they can resell. This is amazing parenting. I'm telling you, I'm like, I'm learning. And Rian said that one day he was there in the Cash Crusaders, and they're walking, and his young boy, Sebastian, he's 11, 12, comes, starts pulling at dad. He said, dad, 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 I found something good. He said, what is it, boy? He said, no, it's, it's an, a titanium tripod. He says, dad, he says, yeah, tell me about it. He says, no, dad, they're selling it for 800 rand, but I've just Googled it. It, can, it retails at 5,000 rand. It's in great condition. So he's like, okay. And they start to negotiate because the boy doesn't have money. But he said, okay, I'll buy. But this is the repayment value if you sell this. And the boy says, I've got it. And they go to the till and try not to show the excitement buying a titanium tripod for 800 rand. A couple weeks go by. They put it on Gumtree. And they sell it for over 5,000 rand. This little boy's wallet is bursting at the seams. And as he, as he told me this sort of reality, I start to see something going, actually, I think so often many of us, I walk into Cash Crusaders and I'm looking for a wet wipe because I'm like, stuff feels dusty. Just a second hand. I'm not that guy. But he's, trust, he's trained his son to look for the gold that's in there. The things that other people have thrown away, the things that people have bypassed, saying, actually, I'm going to redeem the value here. I don't want to stress this too far, but I want to say that I think that it's out of the ordinary, dull things in our lives that God brings his life. And I think too many of us are bypassing those things because we don't see the true value of them. Maybe you're here and you've been chained to a sick child and you're bemoaning the fate. Actually, I feel like I've lost time. Or you're in a tough marriage, and you're just saying, it's a very dull-eyed marriage. You're saying, this marriage is not what it promised. This marriage has failed to deliver the joy that I thought it would give. You've had years serving an ailing mother or father. Maybe you had a job that sucked the life of you. I, I want to say, I think too often we're waiting for a new season, or a new relationship, or a new job, or some sort of breakthrough then I will count. Then I'll have value. Then I'll be able to make a difference. When I believe God is saying, don't wait for a new season, new relationship, a new job, he says, I'm going to give you new sight where you're at. I'm longing. Just give me Rachel. Now I've given you Leah. Will you love Leah? Will you serve her? Because out of that life, I'm going to bring my life. I want to say that there is value in your ordinary. There's value in your frustration because God wants to redeem it. We train our eyes. You see, this is the story. The story picks up with one of their sons. Their son's name is Judah. And if you follow his story, his fingerprints are all over Genesis. And uh, uh, I'm taking us through whole chapters of the chunk here, saving you a lot of time in your reading plan. But the, thank you for that little chuckle, Leanne. I appreciate it. But Judah, his story picks up in, in Genesis chapter 38. We follow Judah's been birthed, not from Rachel, but he's been birthed from the dull-eyed girl, Leah. And Judah's story picks up, and he has three sons, and they're wild boys. If you want to know, their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. I'm, I'm considering those three for my boy, but just be considering. But he has these three wild sons who are quite wild and wicked, the Bible describes them. But he marries them off. He marries the first one, Ur, to a girl named Tamar. And she's a young girl, and, she, and, and they get married. But after a little while, Ur dies because God says he is a wicked man. 
So the son dies. So actually, there's no, there's no, the line is stopped with, with Ur and with Judah if there's no son from the firstborn. So he then takes Tamar and says, Tamar, you're going to marry my secondborn, Onan, because I want, you need to redeem my line. You need to bring a future here. But the story goes, because Onan was wicked, he also dies. Now all of a sudden, I can imagine Judah saying, third son? I don't have a third son. Sorry. No, because it, it starts to become, I can imagine, a reputation around her. She's like a bit of the black widow. <laughs> the sort of like, everything she touches dies. Guys, be careful. So much so that actually, Judah says, rightfully, we should have given the third son to her in that culture. But he says, I oh, know he's too young, let's wait a while. But the Bible says he had no intention to give her that son. So he cons her and sends her away, back to her father. He sends her back to her father in shame, to a, basically for a woman in that culture, to a dead end. Sends her back to no future and sends her to a, a life where her reputation would be following her. In the back, the background, the future for her has been shut and she would have had behind her all the rumors. Ooh, that girl, two husbands died on her watch. Careful, careful of her boys. I love this story because it's quite a weird one. But we find that Judah is unwilling to take blame. He's in denial. He actually shifts blame onto Tamar. It's her fault. He becomes irrational. And that's what happens in our lives before we get too critical of Judah. Is that I want to tell you shame leads us to either self-pity or self-righteousness. Shame does that. Shame will either make you feel sorry for yourself and why me this is always bad. Or self-righteousness saying at least I'm not as bad as them. And start to, That's what shame does. Shame pushes in that way. But either way our future becomes smaller and smaller. Because we have set ourselves up as the makers or breakers of our destiny. It's me. I'm going to make the thing. I'm going to cover up this injustice. But the story goes on. And there's this incredible moment where Tamar realizes the great injustice has been done to her. She realizes that actually he has no intention. Judah is not going to call me back for the third son. She, he's, he's marooned me. He's left me on the side. That actually I've got my, the rest of my life is going to be one of exclusion, of isolation and separateness. Because this guy has betrayed me. He's supposed to have made a way for me, but he's thrown me to the wolves for as, as, a, as a metaphoric way. So she realizes that injustice has been done. So Tamar goes after justice herself. Now what, what follows, let me tell you, highlights that this book, the Bible, is not primarily a book of life, life lessons or morals. Because if you're looking for a virtuous hero to emulate, to copy, to follow, you're not going to find one in this story. Actually, this Bible is not even politically correct. As I read it, it's not. Because I want to tell you, let me let you know, the next part of the story is, is not PG-13, but I'm so grateful that this Bible has got stories like this to help us because God gave us a gospel that's not afraid of our mess, not afraid of our perversion, because actually my R18 sin needs an explicit gospel. And I want to put this courage in you by sharing the story with you. That actually Tamar, she knows her father-in-law's secrets. She knows the father-in-law's weaknesses, Judah. She knows him. And she knows Judah's background. She knows Judah's generational failures before that. She knows that Judah's father was a man who had multiple wives. And it was a man who, Jacob, who stole the blessing from his oldest brother, who conned his father. And he knows that his father above him was the one who also was filled with shady dealings. This is a generational thing. This is something that has followed and dogged this family for years. She knows that. So she's going to prey on that weakness. So what she does, Tamar does, she knows that this man, Judah, is a weak father. She knows that Judah is a wicked father-in-law. And she knows that Judah is also a waste of a husband. So what she does is she hears that Judah is coming on a business trip. So she dresses up like a prostitute. She changes her appearance. And she waits at the city gate for him. Judah arrives. And Judah walking in. His lustful eyes light up as he sees this prostitute on the side of the road. 
not knowing that it's his daughter-in-law. And he approaches her and says, come, let's sleep with me. That's the Bible text. Literally, Judah, out of his mouth, says, come sleep with me. This is Judah in the Bible. And there comes this deal where Tamar says, okay, I'll sleep with you, but how do I know that you're going to pay me for this? He says, no, I'll send you a goat. Don't worry, I'll send you a goat. She says, no, I've heard that before. So actually, in lieu of that payment, before it comes, I want you to leave me with your identity seal, your cord, and your walking stick. That might not mean much to you here, but it's basically her saying, for our modern-day equivalent, leave me with your ID book and your credit card. Then I'll know you're going to pay me. And in his lust, he goes, all right, whatever. You know what? I, I don't mind. I'll pay you, but come, let, let's go and sleep together. So they sleep together. She falls pregnant. And then very quickly after that moment, as Judah leaves, she puts back on her grieving clothes, her widow clothes, and she goes back to the life she knew. Now, this is when things heat up, because in verse 24 of chapter 38, Genesis, you see the news comes back to to Judah. Somebody says, Judah, you'll never believe it, but actually we've heard rumors that your daughter Tamar has been parading around, daughter-in-law Tamar has been parading around as a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. And this news comes back to Judah. And Judah standing there, you think might, he knowing what he has done, he doesn't know it's who she is yet, but you think maybe he would be a bit more understanding of her plight. But what rises up in Judah? Self-righteousness. And Judah says this, declares, I am proven right about her. She is a waste. He says she's pregnant. He doesn't know that he's the one who's made her pregnant, but he says she's a waste. And I knew that. I knew this was happened. That's why I sent her away. His self-righteous nature kicks in. He says these words, take her and burn her. You think this was left for some crusade era? No, this is in the Bible, the first book of the Bible, this type of language. But I want to tell you that this is actually not something that is foreign to us today. Because this is what the church thinks, the people, the world think of the church. They think the church are hypocritical and angry. That we'll point out their sin and ignore ours. That we'll be angry about their sin. But actually, I'm going to hide my stuff under the bed. But I love this story because just as she is being pulled out, this is drama 101, as she's being pulled out to her doom to be, to, I don't know what is, to be put to death, she yells out and she says, whoever this cord and steel belong to, whoever this stick belongs to, is the one that made me pregnant. And there's an amazing phrase that comes up there. It says, at this moment, Judah recognized those things as his own. And the word recognize there is, a, is, a, is a, an, an Aramaic word which says, uh, Pakana means he recognized, but it's a better way translated, he had revelation. The eyes went on as he said, that those are mine. Not just those are mine, but everything fell into place. His sin, his shame, his guilt fell into place. And as he recognized this, he said this, the words came out of his mouth. He said, she is more righteous than me. Now, this is a sordid story. She was pregnant with a father-in-law's, with, she was pregnant with her father-in-law's child. After he's, the two, she's been married to two of the sons and they've died. This is a weird story where you're trying to say, what is the moral of the story, Gabe? Where, what are we drawing out for our own lives here? Give me something to write down in my notes. I don't have much. Except this, as you keep reading that sordid tale, as she gives birth to the kids, the kids, she has twins. And the twins, one, the, the eldest of the twins, his name is Perez. And the name Perez means breakthrough. Just something about that starts to stir in my heart that actually amidst his abusing, his hiding, and his self-righteousness, amidst her shame, her rejection, and her deceit, comes a seed called breakthrough. 
out of this mess comes a child named Breakthrough. Now, let me tell you, at every juncture, there's this past lingering in the background and pursuing these people. For Judah, there's this past lingering, and he's trying to get rid of the sin, the shame that he's done. He's trying to get rid of it. But in, in Tamar's life, she's trying to get rid of her the, the widow's label. She's trying to get rid of those things, and she's doing everything in her power to get free into a future, but feels like there's always something just lurking in the back, grasping at their future, pulling them back into the sordid tail of their past. They can't outrun it fast enough. They can't swerve quick enough to dodge this the shame that's following them. And I go, what do we do with the story? Well, this morning I'd love to show you something. It's in the book of Matthew. It's a chapter that is often relegated when you see it pop up on your reading plan on January 1. Matthew 1, it's the fastest one you read because you just skip it very quickly. But verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1 says this. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. If you keep reading that, you keep reading at the end of that, it ends up saying all the way up to Mary and Joseph, Joseph, who was the father of Jesus. The line of Jesus comes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now that, that track record, they should have mentioned at that moment, not Judah, but the eldest. Judah was the fourthborn. He was the one who was in the middle, born from Leah, from the wrong girl. Should have been the one that was excluded. And actually, by, maybe by his moral character, he earned that right. No, no, no. His moral character further disqualified him from carrying on the lineage of Jesus. But actually, not only did Jesus say, I'll excuse I'll, or I'll forgive the moral, the moral chaos. He said, actually, I'm going to use your moral chaos. I'm going to use your daughter-in-law who slept with you to give you a child to carry on the line. I'm not only just going to excuse it, I'm going to use it. Now, this is what is powerful in the story is that God says this, that he, he identifies with the worst of us. He identifies with the least of us, the secret part of us, the ashamed part of us. And he says, I identify with that. But I love the fact that he doesn't just say, I identify. He says, I'm going to be a God who doesn't let that define you. I want to say this morning that in 1 Peter 5, there's a scripture that says that the enemy, Satan, beware of him. Because he's parading, he's roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Today I want to tell you there's an enemy that's in your rearview mirror who wants to disqualify your future. That you're standing here and you're singing songs and you're hearing the word of God preached and, and, and God is, is pulling open a future that you don't deserve, that you haven't earned. And said, actually, I'm going to bring breakthrough where you don't deserve it. I'm going to give you an inheritance. But I want to tell you there's something in the rear view mirror of your life, your shame, your past, your disqualification, your, your anger, your, your, your sin, your abuse, the thing that you've carried for too long, your unforgiveness, that thing is in your rear view mirror. And the 1 Peter 5 says that is the enemy, and he's parading around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. He doesn't want to just make life uncomfortable for you. He doesn't want to just make you irritated. He wants to devour you and pull you away from your future and chain you to your past. So you confess it, you pray it, you, you worship, but always you're lingering with that thing in your head. Why? I want breakthrough, but it just feels like I can't catch a break. This morning, I want to tell you the great news in that scripture. I've underlined it 17,000 times. That's an exaggeration, but quite a lot. 1 Peter says that this, that the enemy is roaming around like, like, like a roaring lion. He is not a lion. 
He is parading like a roaring lion. Why is this profound for you and I? Is because in the book of Revelations chapter 5, our Savior named Jesus, the one who brings freedom, the one who breaks the chains of addictions, who breaks the chains of past, who sets us free. Jesus is declared as this, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I love this. I love this gospel. I love as you follow it that the only other time in the New Testament the name Judah pitches up says Matthew chapter 1 is at the end of the book declaring victory. There is a lion who roars over your future. Though there is a, a, someone like a lion who comes and wants to pull you back and disqualify you, there is a real lion. His name is Jesus who roars and says, I am the tri- lion of the tribe of the failure. I'm the lion of the tribe of the reject. I'm the lion of the tribe of the broken. I'm the lion of the tribe of the forgotten, the rejected, the isolated, the shamed, the abused, the forgotten. I'm the lion of the tribe of Judah and I am roaring in victory over everyone's life. If they allow it. I want to ask you this morning, which lion are you allowing to have the loudest voice in your life? The one parading like a lion that reminds you of your past, reminds you of rejection, reminds you of your abuse, reminds you of your apathy, reminds you of that weekend when you did that, reminds you of when you didn't do this, reminds you of the promises you haven't kept, reminds you of the coldness in your heart, that lion like, the, like a lion, or you're allowing the lion of the tribe of Judah to roar over your failure. And say, I'll provide a future where it seems there's no future. I'll provide a breakthrough where you feel like you're stuck. This morning, I want to tell you that God uses ordinary, dull-eyed, disqualified people to bring his life. I don't know about you, but I'm like, God, use me. Use me. But every time I pray that, the the, the enemy who's like a lion starts to say, yeah, but Gabe, you can't be used because this is why you're disqualified. And his list goes on long with me, if I'm honest. But in those moments when I go, God, I want to be used. I want to be effective. I have to learn to release the line of the tribe of Judah to say, no, 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 no. Silence those voices. There's a future for you. There's a future for you. Because it's from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, Perez, that my life came. Breakthrough comes through that. I want to tell you this morning as I land that our breakthrough out of our mess, out of our shame, out of our dead ends, out of our pain that we think we'll never get over, out of our loneliness that we'll feel we'll never get through. Our breakthrough does not come through New Year's resolutions. Our breakthrough does not come through a new husband or wife. Our breakthrough does not come through a new job or a new country or a new counselor or a new list of try-harder techniques. Our breakthrough comes not in the new, but in the who. And I want to tell you strongly today with absolute conviction and courage in my heart that your breakthrough Your Perez is in Jesus Christ. And he can take any mess, he can take any right of and say, watch what I do for my glory. I want to invite us to stand to our feet this morning as we land. This morning I woke up with that phrase that God uses ordinary, dull-eyed, ordinary, disqualified people. And it put joy in my heart. And I started to think of you, not because you are dull-eyed, you all look beautiful. But I started to think about this congregation in Milnerton that rent a, a facility at a primary school that seems very ordinary, that seems very run-of-the-mill, that seems actually in the natural. Ah, it's nice, it's fine. We rent a venue, we gather, but actually God says, you know what, stop using those excuses. I, want to, I, do, I do the impossible with ordinary, dull-eyed people. Stop looking at this church as if it's Leah, as if it's Rachel, as Leah, and say, once day when we get Rachel, then we'll make a difference. One day when we get our new building, one day when something happens, one day when God adds to our numbers, one day, no, 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 one day when God gives us a better preacher than Gabe, please, Lord. Stop 
asking for the one day and start saying, actually, today is the day I'm faithful to Leah. Because it's through Leah, the ordinary, dull-eyed people, the ordinary, dull-eyed things, the ordinary, dull-eyed situations, even the things that you feel are frustrating. If you say, God, give me eyes of faith, he says, watch what I'll do with you. Now, I want to prophesy over to you today that maybe you feel that you're dull-eyed and ordinary. The life of God wants to explode in your life. He wants to use dull-eyed, ordinary people to shame the wise, to show us that he uses the foolish things of the world. So this morning, I want to pray for you, no matter where you are in your story, whether you are in the midst of your mess and you say, I need a savior to help me, whether you feel you're trying to get free of your mess and you're saying, I need just something to push me through, I need breakthrough, or maybe you're running, you're charging into the things of God, but you've just got this voice in the background whispering your disqualification. Today is a day where we put to death the lion, the one like a lion, and we say, actually, I'm going to release the lion of the tribe of Judah over my life, over my situation. If that's you, can you lift your hands as high as you can so I can pray over us as a people? Father, I pray right now over every single person here. I thank you, Father God, where the voice of disqualification has reigned, where the voice of of apathy has, has gone on for too long. I thank you, Father God. Today is a day of qualification. I right now pray over, I pray over every single son and daughter here. Today is a day of breakthrough. Today is a day of breakthrough. Today is a day of breakthrough. Not now because there's a new promise, not because there's a new wave of momentum, but because there's a new revelation, a new sight of you, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I declare that over every single heart here. I thank you, Jesus, that today, that you would roar over Kevin's life. I thank you, Jesus, roar over Kevin's life. I thank you, Father God, today you'll roar over Shanique's life. That you'd roar, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I thank you, Father, that you'd roar today over Mark Hughes' life. You'd roar over it, Jesus. I thank you today you're roaring over Juan's life. I thank you today you're roaring over Taylor's life. I thank you, Jesus, that you're roaring loudly. And the revelation of you would subdue the lion. We don't have to run faster. We don't have to hide harder. We don't have to be cleverer and clever with our sin. We have to bring it to you and say, Lion, roar over my sin. Roar over my disqualification. Because my eyes are fixed on you, Jesus. I thank you today, today, Lord, that today is a day of breakthrough. Because today is a day where we look to you. In every situation, I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.